In this episode of Boss Files, Melinda Gates invites us on her personal journey, why she's dedicated her life's work to achieving equality for all women. She documents her path in her new book, The Moment of Lift. Her message, when we lift up women, we lift up humanity. I'm an ardent feminist because I know that when you lift up women, they invest in everybody else and they lift up society. Gates tells me she's committed to eliminating the barriers women face around the world, especially unpaid labor, access to contraceptives, and discrimination at work. And she dives deep into her personal struggle advocating for contraceptives and her Catholic faith. So to have your own church turn around and say that about you, it was, it hurt. I mean, it was a punch in the gut, but I also knew it was coming. I expected it because I knew that we disagreed. And um, so I expected it. And a little bit, I could say, well, it means that I'm doing something important if they're willing to attack me. Plus, from being one of the first female MBA employees at Microsoft to establishing a more equal partnership at home with her husband, Bill Gates, and how she found her full self again after having children. So why did Melinda Gates choose this moment to really open up? I ask her as we sit down for a conversation on her book tour in her hometown of Dallas, Texas. Hello, Dallas. It is so good to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks, Poppy. And I have to say, too, it is so great to be home. I bet. (laughs) So... Warren Buffett, a close friend of yours and Bill's, and uh, who has entrusted a bulk of his money with the Gates Foundation, said to Fortune, Bill is smart as hell, obviously, and I quote, but in terms of seeing the whole picture, Melinda's smarter. So there you go. Wow, that's sweet. This is a quote. (laughs) And I have had the privilege of getting to know Melinda uh, as a journalist over the last decade and covering the work that she's done and of the Gates Foundation. And the journey has been remarkable to watch from my seat, Uh, especially when she made that choice to say, okay, now it's all about women and equality. And it's been remarkable for me to watch as a journalist, but I think even more so as a mother, a new mother, and as a woman, sort of fighting this fight as well. Um, And that's what this is all about. That's what the moment of lift is about. It's about true equality. So let's begin there. You argue the United States is moving backward, Melinda, because men are making decisions for women. You call yourself not only a feminist, but an ardent feminist. And on page three of the book, you write, sometimes all that's needed to lift women up is to stop pulling them down. And that made me think of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who likes to quote, the 19th century abolitionist and feminist Sarah Grimke who said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask is that our brethren take their feet off our neck. So have they? (laughs) I would say that we have come a distance for sure in the United States. I would far rather be a woman today living in the United States than I would be 30 or 40 years ago. But I think we still have quite a distance to travel. And to me, equality can't wait. We need to do something about it. We have this window of time that to me is open, I believe, because of the Me Too movement, because we saw so many women come out and run for public office, both at the federal and the state level in the midterm elections. And so it's fabulous that we have now, you know, about 24% of Congress is women. But if we stay at this current rate of adding women to Congress, it's going to be 60 years until we have parity for women in Congress. And to me, that's just far too long to wait. Our kids will be retired or nearing retirement. Possibly. That is is too far. You write in the book, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And when I read that line, I read it again and again. Tell me why you chose that and why this is the moment of lift. Well, to me, I have met so many incredible women in my 20 years of travels with the foundation. You know, I travel at least three times a year to various countries in the developing world. And what I see is that women, when they band together and when the barriers are broken through, you know, a man helps them sometimes break through a barrier or see something in a new way, or women band together to demand their rights or to call someone to task on things that have been wrongs that have been done to them, 
everything starts to change for them. And what I know is that we all have this amazing power inside of us, and yet quite often society will tell a young girl, you can't be the head of a Fortune 500 company in the United States. Your chance of getting there is very slim. Less than 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs in our country today are women. And so I think when you hear these young girls coming out in, as young women in the workforce, they call it 10,000 paper cuts often in the United States. They're often being told, no, you can't do that, or their ideas are being re-explained by somebody else in the room. And that just shouldn't be, not in the century that we live in now. We know men and women can do things equally. Why did you do this? Yes, they can. Why now? Why was this your moment of lift to actually write this down and get deeply personal, which we'll get to? Why, why did you think, okay, I can do it now and I'm just going to lay it all out there? Well, because again, I've been doing this work for 20 years and I think at first I was a bit fearful. I felt like I don't know enough. My background is computer science. It's not biology. And yet we're doing global health at the foundation. But there comes a point where you have met enough scientists, worked with enough partners, read the research, funded research that didn't exist because you knew it needed to be done, uh, and met so many people who shared the reality of their lives. So you have this, you know, quantitative and qualitative data, and at some point you just say, okay, come on, I have to tell everybody what I know. And again, this moment of time that we have, this window, I want to make sure it doesn't close, that it stays wide open and we bust through it. Are for you women. nervous that it has been closing more in the past few years in this country? Well, I am concerned. I mean, you know, I saw, I think we all saw what happened with Anita Hill uh, those days between in, when she was in front of this, the being questioned by the Senate Judiciary hearing um, about the Supreme Court nominee. And after that, women came out and droves and ran for office. So we ticked up in terms of the number of women in Congress, but then we went back down and we've had this sort of just barely slight growth for women. And I want to make sure that just does not happen again. The other thing is, all over the world, I meet women who are asking us for things and want a better life and know that they can have it with small investments made on behalf of their health, their daughter's education, or giving them access to the internet, just as a few examples. And we should just band together and decide we're going to do that. It will change the world. It'll make societies better all over the world. You talk about your children, your three children in this book, obviously, but one thing that struck me is that you talk about, at one point, feeling a duty to your children. That's what you wrote, a duty to your children to do this, to voice all of this. Um, And you've written about and talked about your son and raising a feminist son. But you yourself told me two years ago when we sat down that at age 18, you would not have called yourself a feminist. So when did that change and how? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have called myself back then a feminist. And I had to really work through it. And young women in the United States will tell you they still are working through it. But here's what I have come to know. If my definition of feminism is if a woman has her full voice in society, in her home, her workplace, and her community. And if she can take any decision in her home, her workplace, and her community, then I am all for that. And to me, that is what feminism means in this century. And so I'm absolutely, I'm an ardent feminist because I know that when you lift up women, they invest in everybody else and they lift up society. And so, yes, I was very proud that, of my son that he, um, he, he he's actually taught me a lot about feminism and how to think about it in this era. And so I was really proud of him when he said he was 18. I said, well, would you mind me saying that publicly that you're a feminist? He said, not at all. What has he taught you about feminism? That's interesting. He's taught me about where the barriers still are, um, which laws. He's very interested in uh, political theory and law. Uh, which laws hold women back, when certain things change. Some of the pieces I knew from our global health work and things that I had studied, but he's deeply invested in learning about the law, and so he's helped me see where the law still holds women back. Right, and is such a barrier. Your mother, who's the only one who can call you the nickname Malin, right? She obviously had a huge and powerful impact on you, but she you talk about didn't necessarily know how great that impact was at the time. And one thing she said, if you don't set your own agenda, somebody else will. 
I wonder if you feel like you let other people set the agenda for your life, Melinda, for a long time, and now you're setting your own. Yeah, I um, I would say this. My mom, my mom and my dad had a huge impact on me, but my mom had this enormous impact on me because I knew from both my parents that I was deeply loved. That is a very powerful message for a young girl. I knew that she always had my back. So my still my favorite drink is iced tea because I have very strong memories here in the South of coming home after school and I would sit down and my mom would make us both a glass of iced tea and even though I had an older sister and two younger brothers, she would sit and listen to my day. And so what I would say is, so I've always known she's just there for me and, and my dad's there for me. And um, I think when I graduated high school, I felt like there were no barriers for women. In fact, I knew I felt like there were no barriers. But then I went off to college and, and it seemed like the rules had changed. The rules of the game were different. Um, I thought, for instance, in my political science classes that when a professor asked a question, you raised your hand. I was a good Catholic student, sure. Catholic girl. But no, it turned out you shouted out the answer. And I thought, huh, I need to be a different way in the world. But yes, I think for a long time, I knew where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. I, got, I accomplished at Microsoft what I wanted to. But even with our foundation, there are times when I think I held myself back or others assumed because I didn't know certain things that maybe I didn't have as much credibility as my husband. And I'm just done with that. That is not true, and I know that. <laughs> For you, was yes. there an enough moment? Yes. When I made the decision, um, and I went and told Bill that I wanted to do this, and he supported it, but when I made the decision that I was going to come out publicly on behalf of contraceptives, I knew then it was an enormous turning point. And I just, it was, yeah. It was a huge decision because, um, because I am Catholic. Uh, and also because, you know, I'm a private person, so to be that public. But I cannot turn my back. I just can't. When women say to me over and over and over again in the developing world, they had access to contraceptives and now they don't. The same clinic that I'm standing there and we're sitting in the sun talking and they're getting vaccinations for their children and they'll tell you they walked, you know, 10 miles to get there because they know the difference vaccines make, but then they say, but what about my tool? What about my health? Why at this clinic that's about the size of the rug that we're on here, why before could I get contraceptives and I can't now? And it became this rallying cry. And so eventually I decided somebody had to do something about it. And when I stepped out in that moment, I knew it was a turning point. But you didn't step lightly at all. In, in fact, in fact, when people called on you and said, oh, no, 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 Melinda, you have to do more. You can't just talk about this. You have to be an advocate. You have to be in the field. You have to be doing this. It's a fight that you struggled with internally that you didn't really want to take on. And I, I'm interested in why. Were you scared of the public backlash? Um, well, so the, the story that you're referencing is that on the day of this London Family Planning Summit that we and our partners and various governments hosted in London, we had worked tirelessly for 18 months to raise $2.6 billion to put back on the global health agenda, finally, contraceptives. And it had taken so much work, and we were threading a very careful needle um, about how to do that, because people do agree around contraceptives. Yeah. We really do as a world. Um, but I was pretty tired when that was over, and I went out for kind of a nice dinner afterwards, a celebratory dinner. My best friend, Mary Lehman, who I met on the first day of high school, who's here in the audience tonight, oh. was with me. Hi, Mary. And, and we went out with a group of women from London who were influential in their own arenas, and I thought it was literally just to talk about the fam London Planning, Family Planning Summit. And we absolutely did that. But then they said, not too long into the dinner, but you know, Melinda, you've just begun. And I said, what do you mean? We just raised all this money for contraceptives. And they said, no, there are so many more issues for women. 
And I think I describe in the book that I was in tears on the way to the airport that night. Mary and I caught a flight back home uh, to the United States, and I just kept saying to her, I can't do more. Like, I, 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 you know, there are so many more issues for women. I knew that there's no silver bullet, but this was the most impactful I could do. Um, but I wasn't ready to step up to other things yet, and that, that took me a little while. But you did it, clearly. And you'll read all about it in the book if you haven't read it yet. I want to stay on contraceptives for a moment because it is, it sure. is so important. Um, and at the same time, so divisive. Um, you knew you'd be called out as a Catholic, uh, publicly advocating for access to contraceptives around the world. And you write about the official Vatican newspaper saying that you had gone astray and were, quote, confused by misinformation. People labeled you a former Catholic, a so-called Catholic. What was that like for you? I, it was tough. I mean, it feels like a punch in the gut when your own church that you grew up in and you still believe. I mean, I got so many incredible things from the Catholic Church and my Catholic education, my social justice mission um, and beliefs. And the fact I'm even out in the developing world and have this belief that I got from the Ursula nuns in high school that, you know, we went out to the local Dallas County Courthouse. I worked there some summers. I worked in the local hospital. I worked in the elementary school just down the road. And they taught us that one person can make the difference in somebody else's life. So, you know, I came into my marriage with that. So to have your own church turn around and say that about you, it was, it hurt. I mean, it was a punch in the gut, but I also knew it was coming. I expected it because I knew that we disagreed. And um, so I expected it. And a little bit I could say, well, it means that I'm doing something important if they're willing to attack me. How do you reconcile the two? Are you still a Catholic today? I am still a Catholic because there are many beautiful, beautiful teachings that come from the Catholic Church, including love thy neighbor. Hmm. And when I am out in these communities, and I'm out in Senegal, or I'm in Niger, I'm in Tanzania or Mozambique, or Bangladesh, you know, you're meeting these women and men who are sharing their lives with you, but they're saying to you, don't you understand this is a crisis? I, I will die in childbirth if I have another child too soon. Or the four children I have, if I have another one too quickly, it's not fair to these four because I can barely feed them on this tiny plot of land I have. And so if I say to myself that the Bible and the church teaches us to love thy neighbor, love thy neighbor is keeping your neighbor alive and helping feed them and helping them get access to many of the things that they're longing for that we have here and that we're so lucky to have in the United States. So I feel very sound in my beliefs um, because of all my travel. And quite honestly, I wish more uh, priests and cardinals in the Vatican traveled the way I do. I have met many priests in the developing world who tell me they preach from the pulpit contraceptives and condoms because they know it saves lives. Would this <laughs> to your point about those priests traveling, they're all men. So let's talk about if they were women. And if you think that the situation would be the same if women were allowed to be priests in the Catholic Church. I think it would be completely different. I just do. I mean, women will tell you all over the world that they are generally, in most families, the person that is, has the primary responsibility of caring for their children, for feeding their children and trying to make sure they're educated. Men absolutely participate, but when it comes to feeding the child, that is the woman's job. And so I know if there were women at the top of the church, they would see things differently in the world because they are women. They just would. And we also have to remember that in the 1960s, there were two Vatican councils that came forward and recommended to the Pope that the Catholic Church change its views on contraceptives. And those Vatican councils included men and women. You go way beyond where I've ever heard or read you go before on this in the book because you argue that you believe within the Catholic Church they are using moral cover from the church's teachings and lacking basic empathy that you're arguing essentially Melinda is costing lives that, that is what I am arguing and I believe in 
I absolutely believe that we connect with one another, that there's a universal love, and that if you connect with one another as human beings, you start to drop some of these preconceived notions. The idea that women cannot use contraceptives is a man-made rule. That is not something that comes, that's a man-made part of the religion. And, you know, you have to look back at some of the other teachings that have come in the church and even in society. We change and we grow as society, but sometimes it's our churches that are the last to change and update. And it's, it's just time. More from our conversation with Melinda Gates after the break. Let's talk a little bit about your time, your career your early days at Microsoft. And I know, you know, for people who don't know the story about your father and how influential he also was on your life as an aerospace engineer, worked in the Apollo missions, and taught you, told you, my teams are better when we have more female mathematicians. So clearly he helped prepare you for this, this fight early on. You're at Microsoft in the early days, and you write it was just so brash so argumentative, so competitive with people fighting to the end on every single point, so bad you thought about quitting. Mm. You obviously didn't quit then. Later you decided to leave. Did you fight it, Melinda, or did you grit your teeth through it? Yeah, so yeah. So I think it's important to first talk about for a minute my father's role, because yeah. he's in the audience, and three of the Look women mathematicians. Look at all these great people in the I audience know. tonight. <laughs> My dad, always, my dad worked on the early Apollo missions, amongst other things, and he always came home and talked about these women when they would, he would get them on their teams, his teams were better. And so not only did my dad talk about that at the dinner table, but then um, when I would, he would take us and my mom and all of our siblings and we'd go to the company picnic, you, we would meet these women. So three of them are here tonight. And so my dad always believed in women being able to work and women in science and engineering and technology, and I just knew that. And so my parents both then started a business, a real estate investment business, to be our college fund, because there were four kids in the family. And I got this message from both of my parents, as did my siblings, that we would all be college going, and they would figure out how to pay for it. That is such a powerful message, and to see my mom during the day running that small business while we, she's also raising four kids, and then we would all work on it in the evenings and the weekends. I'm quite good at mowing lawn and painting and easy off cleaning ovens from these properties, these rental properties. Yeah. So when I went off to school and to Duke University, there were very few women in computer science after freshman year. So I got used to coding with teams of guys. I got used to even running coding teams of guys at college, and I found out that I was quite good at that. So when I got to Microsoft, I was the first, there was a class of 10 uh, MBAs, their first class of MBAs, and it was just me and nine guys. Wow. But I didn't find that very unusual because I'd been in the computer lab with lots of guys. Um, but the thing, and I loved what we were doing. I loved creating products. We were creating the future. We knew it. The thing I didn't love was the abrasive nature of it. And I, um, I thought about quitting after two years. I thought strongly about quitting. And in fact, that had been my plan, that I would go take a job somewhere else. And, um, but then I thought, well, I'll just give it a try. I'll try and be myself for, at first. And I, don't think, I didn't think it would work. Um, and, and I'll give that a whirl, and if not, then I'll quit. And I started trying to be myself, and I realized that I was moving up the managerial chain more quickly. And I was able to attract other developers, male and female, but lot, mostly male, lots of male developers to my teams. By the time I left Microsoft, I was running a division, a part of the consumer division, 1,700 people. And people would say, how did you get that amazing developer from across the company? Right. And I'd say, well, I guess he just wanted to work in a more collaborative environment. You didn't yell at him. I, no, I didn't. And I had his back and her back when we were off schedule, when we were yeah. late, when there were more bugs in the project. I mean, the, we were creating the future. We were creating hard things. And so, yes, you're going to have failures and mistakes and times you're off schedule. That's part of life. You know, it's interesting that you had that experience back then. And there's this really touching story that I'm going to say for all of you in the book about a man who worked for you and their partner was very ill and what you did for them. Read it. It's very touching. It will bring tears to your eyes. But can we just, for a moment, fast forward from then to now and Silicon Valley now, because your friend, Charlotte, at Microsoft said to you, it's not okay for women to cry at work, but it's okay for men to yell at work. 
which is the more, you know, emotionally mature response, she asked. <laughs> do you, I'll let you answer that for yourselves. Um, do you think things have really changed all that much in Silicon Valley, I don't know, at Microsoft to today? I mean, you, you write about Susan Fowler at Uber, and look what she just went through. Right. So if you talk with women and men in Silicon Valley, some companies have changed, but, but quite a few still haven't. And what I know to be true and is that we need more pathways for women into technology. And as we get more pathways in, particularly that opening computer science class in college, and it's more welcoming to young women, yeah. we show them that they cannot just do uh, theoretical problems, but real world problems. Now what I'm seeing is that when women graduate college, they'll have four or five job offers from the tech companies, and I'm hearing young women say, I don't want to go to those three tech companies but because they are abrasive. I want to go to the ones that are supportive of women and more collaborative. Here's the thing, though. What really irks me is that a lot of those companies that haven't changed are still succeeding by traditional measures or metrics of success, right? Still profitable, investors. Like, no one's holding them accountable. When is society, or should society, or is it incumbent on all of us to hold these companies accountable, not invest in them, perhaps? Well, you're finally starting to see... So one of the ways to get change is to create transparency and to use data. And so you finally saw a couple of years ago there was public pressure on the companies to finally report how many women are in the company and what levels of managerial positions they're in. And now there's huge pressure on companies to hire more technical women. So they actually want to. Now they're having and they're just starting to put the work in to really try and get more women and make tech more welcoming in high school and college. And what they got to figure out is how in their company they make them more welcoming. I will tell you, like, I, I watch very closely what Satya Nadella is doing at Microsoft and the head of HR. He is not only serious about it, he is walking the talk. And I see other companies like Tableau that, you know, young women are saying, I really want to go there. It's a collaborative environment. And guess what? That company is rising and doing really well. So I think that societal pressure will start to help, but it could take a while. Because there is this fear that you write about, I think that some still have, that the rise of women just by the nature of it is going to mean the decline of men. And you point out that that is not the case. It's not, you know, man down. All can be lifted. But I'm interested in why, why you felt the need to write that and why you think that still is. Is there a fear? Yes, I think there's definitely a fear. I hear it. You hear this sort of backlash at times, which is, oh, well, women are, you know, we're now starting to graduate more women from college, so that's not good for men. It's true. We need equality graduating from, from college, men and women. But it's not that as women rise, men lose. I mean, one of the things about society is we improve and we get better. You have to think about technology, for instance. Time I was at Microsoft, late 1980s, early 1990s, we did not dream of a cell phone in your pocket. Like, that wasn't even on the radar screen. And yet, think of all the businesses that have been started as because of that cell phone. So society is going to create far more products than we can even imagine today. Technology, biology, etc. So with women rising and men rising, we're just going to better society and we're going to keep furthering things. A perfect example is artificial intelligence. So today, the number of women in artificial intelligence is so small, it's unbelievable. And yet what I know about artificial intelligence is we are using it more and more and more, more than many of us even realize, probably in this auditorium. And it is helping us write the rules behind certain decisions. But we are baking bias into the system by not having women have a seat at the table and not having people of color at the table. And I know what happened when the Constitution was written in this country and how long it took women to get the right to vote. And look where we are in race issues in this country. Do we really want to bake bias into artificial intelligence? I don't think so. How dangerous is it if we don't turn that around very quickly? It's quite dangerous because even as you see, some of the sentencing decisions that are being made uh, are based on artificial intelligence. And so if somebody has not really thought that through from a race perspective and been involved in that? Are you kidding? I mean, I don't know if you saw some of the early first search engines that said, you know, you Google the word grandfather, or you look up the word grandfather, sorry about that, and um, (laughs) I guess you you use Bing to do it. Um, 
There's your headline. But when you look up, when you looked up grandfather, you got screens and screens and screens of white Caucasian grandfathers. Yeah. And as far as I know, I've met a lot of Asian grandfathers, a lot of Hispanic grandfathers, and a lot of black grandfathers. Right? We're made up of lots of rich ethnicities. But if you have, you know, I call it the white guy in the hoodie who's in his twenties, yeah, figuring out the search engine, and he's a white guy, he probably thinks of a white grandfather. Sure. So knowing all of this and where we are today versus where we were just two years ago before the Me Too movement, why did it take so long? Because you had to have women have enough courage to name what was actually going on, and not just in one industry, but in multiple industries. And it took enough female journalists to have the pen to keep dogging that story, and men. There are many, yeah. many enlightened men who also helped with that story, and many enlightened men who work in these places and say, not okay, not okay to have that type of harassment in the workplace, not okay to have that kind of abuse going on. But it took courage, and one thing I know, again, from around the world, is women have to band together, and they often need men to help stand with them if you stand alone, you're going to be shamed and said, "No, no, no, that's just about her. She's making up a story." But when women band together and their stories all start to come out on mass, then a company or a village can't turn away from it. That is what's called transparency, and it's called the power of numbers and data. So we thought we'd be standing alone. Women thought they yeah. they not only thought yeah. they were standing be. alone. Were. Look what happened yes. when one woman came Look forward. That, right? She was shamed and put back in her place. I know. So if we were to bing your wealth <laughs> or Google your wealth, it would be kind of high. And I say this because you talk about your privilege and you've said, I think about my privilege every day. And you write in the book, Great wealth can be very confusing. It can inflate and it can distort your sense of self, especially if you believe that money measures merit. How do you struggle with your privilege, especially given all of the developing world that you spend so much time in and you're this woman walking in in khakis and a white shirt and they don't know you're Melinda Gates? Right. And that's the best way for me to go in because then they see me as just somebody from the West who's there to listen and to help. And what I know in sitting with these women, often you know, on a small mat about this size, this rug, uh, in their village, is they share their lives with you, and we are the same. It's not, yes, I come from a high-income country, and they're from a low-income country, but when you ask parents, which I've done almost on every visit I've ever done, what their hopes and dreams are, you just ask it like that, what are your hopes and dreams? To a T, yeah. they will answer, I want a better life for my children and I want my kids to grow up healthy, I want them to be educated, and I want them to thrive. And I took, I was with a group of senators who went out to Ethiopia in 2013, Democrats and, and Republicans. Senator Brasso was with you. Yes, yeah. Senator Brasso was with me and others. And I remember they were so, um, so enlivened when that question came up and we asked it, they said, my gosh, these parents all said the same thing. They're all so selfless. And then they said, but that's what I want at home for my son or my daughter. And so I do think that that's what we all care about. And we all have to be careful and name our privilege. I have huge privilege. With these resources I have that have come amassed from Microsoft, that's an enormous privilege and a gift. But even as Americans, we have to look at our privilege. I meet so many people in these low-income countries. They want to live here. They want to live in our healthcare system, as imperfect as it is. They would like to have their kids in our school system and go through our universities. So we are lucky to grow up in this country. I mean, and a mother even asked hmm? you to. A mother even asked you to take her child. Absolutely. Here to have this life. I was visiting northern India. And I was there visiting a woman um, who delivered her second son, a newborn baby. She was holding in her arms, beautiful little boy. She delivered in the health clinic. I was there to understand how that was helpful to her. And I was in her, her home with her and her husband and her other son was standing next to her. And then she had this one in her arms. And we talked for a long time. She had a very positive experience. But then when I said to her, um, basically that, what are your hopes and dreams for the future? 
She cast her eyes down. Her name was Mina. She cast her eyes down for a long time, and I thought I'd made a big mistake. I didn't know what I thought I'd, you know, asked in something inappropriate. Finally, she looked up at me, and she said, "The truth is, I have no hope, no hope for feeding these two children and educating them. Will you? Will you please take this one home with you, and my other son as well?" And it was heartbreaking to know. That a woman would give up her child to somebody just that she knew was from the West. She didn't know who I was, but that life would be better. I mean, I could see the struggle in that village, and I don't know how they were going to eke out a means on their little tiny plot of land. That we all, as parents, no matter you know our income level, our race, etc., all just want the best for our children. That's all you know we want. And I, I, I know that now as a parent,、um, and you saw that. It gets to what is really, to me, the central thesis of your book, and it really comes to life at the end. And that is that if we, as a society, continue to push people to the margins, if we continue to exclude, we will not rise and we will not thrive. From your friend Hans and what he taught you, can you just speak to that and your concern? It seems about how we push up people to the margins and and outcasts in society. Yeah, I think we sometimes have trouble accepting that we are all the same, and that we all have a full range of emotions, and we all have hard things that happen in our lives and joyful things that happen in our lives. But sometimes we see somebody in these dire circumstances—somebody who maybe is on the street or has various problems—and we say. That's not me. I, I, I'm not that person. Person, and we push them away, and we say, you know, that that I could never be that person. That would ne- I would never be in that circumstance. And the truth is, you have to say to yourself, hmm, is that really true? That's a question I ask myself all the time, anywhere I go. Is that really true? And I think if we turn the question back on ourselves and we say. Could that ever be me? Like, if I had grown up in different circumstances, if I'd grown up in a different society or different religion, or a, you know, I grew up just completely in a, in a different place than I am now, or I had different set of teachers, I had terrible teachers, where would I have ended up? Yeah. And I think until we accept those sides of ourselves, it's hard for us to accept others. And I think we need to accept all parts of ourselves and all parts of each other's of each other, because that is our humanity. We are all far more the same than we are different. You know, some make the argument that、um, part of the problem in this country now is that many in Congress are very wealthy,、mm. and it takes a lot of money off of the run, and therefore some would argue that they can't relate. Those people, and they can never think that could be me. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I'm just interested in what you think about that. I think we need to make lots of pathways into Congress for young people, for women, for people of color,、um, and we need to break down some of those barriers because, you know. If we have more women in Congress and more people of color, we will change the policies and the laws of this country. We will. We know that from over time. We've seen it because、uh, we all know the debate that is going on right now、uh, over capitalism. And is it working for enough people? An interesting Gallup poll from about six months ago found that more Democrats in America have a positive view of socialism than capitalism. You are a shining example of the power of capitalism and the great wealth that can be created, and what can be done with that wealth. So, what do you think when you see numbers like that? Well, I think that we, when, again, people I meet outside the United States would really like to live in our democracy and our capitalistic society. However, I don't think capitalism. Does everything right, and I think it does. It leaves behind, as Warren says, Warren Buffett, some of these societal problems because they are hard. And I think it's up to us to look at our capitalistic structure and say, why are we having these great inequities in wealth, and what should we do about it? Bill and I are on record saying that we believe it's time to update the tax policy in the United States. High-income people should pay more than middle-income. Middle-income should pay more than low-income. One is capitalism as it exists today in America working for enough Americans. Is it working for enough? 
No, I don't think it's working well enough for all Americans. It's why you've got so much inequity. And I also don't yeah. think our U.S. education system is working well enough at all for most kids or for our democracy. And that seems like an intractable problem where you guys have thrown a ton of energy and money, and it's not an intractable problem, but it, I mean, it can feel like that at times. On taxes, so you're on record saying you think wealthy people should pay more in taxes. Do you believe the wealthiest Americans should pay a 70% marginal tax rate on their 10 millionth dollar and above? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on tax policy. Um, Would you? If that was the law of the land, that's what we would do. Bill and I pay taxes. We probably pay more taxes than probably anybody else in the United States or maybe one other person pays more taxes than we do, potentially. Um, And we're happy to pay those taxes. Look, Bill and Warren are both really clear. They could not have started Berkshire Hathaway in Niger. They could not have started Microsoft in Senegal or in Mozambique. We are lucky if we live in the United States You know, we take for granted clean water comes out of my shower every single day. Probably comes out of most of your showers, too. You know, the fact we have roads and infrastructure and we have the Internet. I mean, you know, 40 percent of women around the world don't have access to Internet. And so we in this country need to look at what we have, but we also need to figure out how do we tune the system and make it better. And I think what I'm trying to get is, is do you think that that that's a proposal by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez? you know, 70% marginal tax rate on the $10 million and above. There's Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's proposed a wealth tax on assets over $50 million that they should be additionally taxed. Is that a good idea, do you think? Would it help America? I think it would help America if we had higher taxes for for high-income people. But this is for Congress to figure out. So I actually, I'm glad that there are two proposals on the table. I hope we have five more proposals on the table. And then Congress has a real debate about it and figures out what's right. I mean, you have to talk about capital gains also and what should be done about those for certain people of of different levels of wealth. But that's not for us to decide. Bill and I are single, two single Americans paying our taxes. That is for Congress to decide, and it's absolutely appropriate that these... um, you know, new candidates are bringing this stuff up. I think that's great. Has Congress sort of abdicated its responsibility on not making some really important big decisions on a number of issues? I think Congress, I mean, as we know from the polling, uh, we are more polarized as a nation than we have ever been. And so it is harder to get things done in Congress, but it is still functioning. I mean, criminal justice reform, criminal justice reform, uh, funding the NIH, Mm -hmm. having a budget, keeping the government open and actually having a budget. It's a good thing when that happens. Yes, it is a very good thing when that happens. More from our conversation with Melinda Gates after the break. So let's talk about Mary Poppins, Mm. because when I read this and when I've heard you talk about this, I just thought, oh my gosh, I feel like this. So perfect, trying to be a perfectionist and you write, for me, perfectionism means hiding who I am, but people look at you and they think you're perfect. And there was a moment when you got a question on a card, I guess, from, from someone who works for you. It said, you're like Mary Poppins. Tell us that story and how it made you feel. Yeah. (laughs) So I agreed um, inside the foundation, you know, we're still, we're tuning our own foundation culture all the time and trying to make it better and better for families and the work we're trying to get done. And so anyway, there's this idea that had been done with a few celebrities, I guess, on TV called Mean Tweets, which is people have these cards. Very funny. It's very funny if you haven't seen it. Go on the internet. You have these cards face down of things people have written or said about you. And then while you're on camera, they get revealed to you and you react. And I thought we're trying to break down some of the uh, by some of the myths inside the foundation. And so I said, "Hey, this might be a fun thing to do inside the foundation." And I will go first. I'm not sure why I volunteered to go Brave. first. Anyway, um, and I love games. So anyway, I was turning over my cards, and the camera's rolling. And um, and one of the cards I turned over said, "You're like Mary Effing Poppins, <laughs> practically perfect in every way." And I later took this card home uh, to dinner because I was like, I, on camera, I'm like, oh, I can't believe anybody thinks this about me. And um, I later took it home, took the stack of cards home and revealed them at the dinner table to two of our three kids were home that night. And they're like, 
oh, mom, that is truly awkward. <laughs> um, but what I will say about this question and, yeah. um, is it's about perfectionism. And I did turn it back on myself because I don't purport to be perfect, but I had been very hard on myself for a very long time and about trying to be perfect at everything I do. And the truth is it takes a ton of energy. There is no such thing as perfect. And we have to all look at this. And I read a fabulous book by Brene Brown a few yes. years ago. She did a fabulous at, interview of you recently. She's great. For the book. At University of Houston. And it's called The Gifts of Imperfection. And it really helped me look at that. And I think so often we have it in ourselves as women but also society expects us to be perfect, expects us to look a certain way and dress a certain way and be smart and take care of the kids at home. And so we need to look at that. Um, I mean, you face this poppy, oh right, gosh. in the media industry? It's, yeah, it's very I, pervasive. Oh Yeah, it's very pervasive. And it's funny, it doesn't come from my bosses, you know, at all. It actually just, I think, comes from society. And what I, what I regret about my job and that is that people only see me on TV or here with the hair and makeup done and you don't see me with wet hair exhausted because the kids were up all night or my husband came home at midnight from a work trip you know and I'm having a really bad day and I think social media makes that worse maybe definitely because I certainly only post the glossy stuff and I think maybe we need I did post a duvet cover when my child had thrown up on it once and I said this is <laughs> I'm working on it, but I agree. I mean, I feel so imperfect every day. Me but too. I, I just turned 37 yesterday, and I'm running into 37 trying to be a little more imperfect and kind to myself. That was my mother's lesson to me. Be kinder to yourself. So That's maybe we great. need to do that. And how does that show up for you? Um, just giving myself a break. Like, it's okay that you didn't work out today. It's okay. You're a good mom, and Sienna, my three-year-old, can have a hot dog, and it's okay. Exactly. She's probably not going mean, to die having a hot dog. problems. Like, look at what you've seen. I mean, in all seriousness, give me a break, Poppy. Like, don't stress about well, this. And what I believe is that women should be able to be anything in society today. If they want to stay home and raise kids, fabulous. By the way, the hardest job. Oh, so much harder than going to work. Is raising kids. It's like the spa on Monday morning <laughs> at CNN. I know, it's so, it's so funny in a certain it's way. We, we've held up work as this thing of, oh, it's the best and everything. No, raising kids is really hard. Way and harder. And you don't get, you, you do show up. Everybody in the room who has kids or grandkids knows you show up every single day, every hour, and it changes. So I believe women should be able to stay home what they want if they want with kids. They should be able to work if they want, or they they should be able to work and have kids. But here's the problem. Society doesn't, this society doesn't value us staying at home. Mm. Uh, they don't pay us for it. So we can barely, you know, uh, uh, childcare is unaffordable for most Americans. So let's talk about unpaid work. And if you think the government should pay for parents to stay home or at least do so for a bit through actual paid parental leave, how do we solve for this? We absolutely need paid family medical leave in this country. We are the only industrialized nation that doesn't have it. And it makes an enormous difference uh, for men and women should take it both because we know from good research from com countries that have had paid family medical leave now for some time that if the man participates early, um, he participates more over the child's lifetime and he starts to value more the unpaid labor in his home. And the reason you want a paid family medical leave is that we also have an aging population and men and women have aging parents and we need to take care of them. So if we value family in society, why are we not willing to shave off a tiny percentage of our GDP and put it into a policy that's sensible. I think sometimes we think in our country, oh, well, I've heard of so-and-so has it, or so-and-so has medical leave or maternal leave. No, 17% of US workers have paid family medical leave. That's it. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. And yet we say we value families. So I write a whole chapter in the book about unpaid labor. That's the things that we do in our homes. Some of, our, some of those tasks are things we absolutely want to do, caring for our loved ones, but other ones are things like chores, you know, dishes, laundry, homework, shopping, driving the kids to school. It, there is no place in the world where men and women do the same amount of unpaid work at home. 
In the United States, women do 90 minutes more a day of unpaid labor than men do. And that equals seven years of their life. On average, across the world, if you take all the statistics across the world, the average is out to seven years of a woman's life. Seven years. And so we're saying to women, okay, 47% of our workforce today are women in the United States, many, many of whom have children. And yet we, we're asking them to make this untenable decision, like you have to just figure out how to make this work. And what I would say is look at those, extra, those 90 minutes and figure out, do you want to redistribute the workload in your home? As a, a woman who just went through this with my second child, my one-year-old um, whose husband took three months off, fully off paid leave because his firm, Ernst & Young, just instituted this four-month policy actually for them. And he did it so that the men who work for him would do it and see it. And he wanted that time with his child. Um, I see the benefit. I feel the benefit now. He's home, obviously, with the kids tonight while I'm here, obviously. Sent me a few few text messages, help me. But other than that, <laughs> he's fine. He's more capable at this than I am. But my question to you on a serious note is, there's a lot of proposals in Congress. You have Senator Marco Rubio on the Republican side, uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. You have not publicly endorsed any of them, and I'm interested in why. Do you think they don't go far enough, or is it I the think right way? I there's no... I, I'm, first of all, I am thrilled there are two proposals there, but I don't think either one of them is a very robust proposal yet, and I wish they were learning more from the states. We have over half a dozen states now that are, that are putting forward paid family medical leave, and I think there's some things to learn from the state policies. All right, let's talk about your marriage, shall we? Oh, sure. Let's do it. All right. So... You made the decision, not an easy one, I don't know if I could do it, to open up about your marriage in this book um, and talk about your journey with Bill, I, I, a journey mm -hmm. to equality, and it can be a tough slog sometimes. How did he help you on that journey, and did any actions of Bill's um, unknowingly to him hinder you, hold you back? Yes, I, I write about this in the book. I'm, I'm a very private person, so opening up about some of these things wasn't easy. But I thought it was important to talk about because I have worked very um, routinely to get both equality in my home and equality in the workforce. We're also executives together at the foundation. We absolutely have equality. But what I write about in the book is I think we all go into our marriage with our own biases. I had some of my own biases about what I was going to do versus what my husband was going to do. So one of the ways that Bill has helped me, because he does believe in equality, even though we haven't always gotten it right, is I tell the story in the book of when our, young, our oldest daughter, Jen, was about to start kindergarten. We both completely agreed the school we wanted to send her to. Um, but I could see years ahead in the minivan, driving back and forth to school, five days a week, and we already had two kids do by really, then. Do you really have a minivan? We did have a minivan, yes. My brothers give me a very hard time about that, and Bill got good at driving the minivan. <laughs> That's great. Um, but anyway, so we both agreed to this school, and um, I said, but let's wait then till Jen's in third grade, because it just seems... You know, like, I'm going to have so much driving. And Bill said no. He felt strongly about her going to this school. But it was 45 minutes round trip from our house. And so he said, well, um, I said, I don't want to do this yet. And he said, well, first he said, how could I help? Which is a really great question. Yes. And before I came up with a solution, he said, I could drive two mornings a week. And I was like, what? You would drive two mornings a week? Because it was an hour round trip for him because he had to go to Microsoft, which was further away. And he said, no, no, I'll value the time. You know, it'll be good time for us. Anyway, so he starts doing this, and three weeks into the school year, um, yeah, three weeks into the school year, one of the moms in the classroom sidles up to me and says, notice anything different here in the classroom? And I said, yeah, there's so many dads coming in and dropping off now. And she said, oh, yes. We went home and said to our husbands, by gosh, if Bill Gates can do this, so can you. Good. So he actually ended up role modeling, or we role modeled inadvertently for other families. There's that, which is it's a great story. I'll never forget that. Um, but there's also the really hard moments, and you talk about a crisis of self after your first child, Jen. And here Bill is sort of at the prime of his leadership at Microsoft, and, and a friend to you, a dear friend to you, said, Melinda, you married a man with a strong voice. And the word you used to describe your feeling then is that that was piercing. 
Mm. And you talk about feeling very alone. Mm. And I know because I've been there even with a husband who stayed home, you know, and did all of that. So, so what happened and how did you find your voice again? Um, I think I will say about myself and even some of my female friends, because we've talked about this a lot over the years, I think when you step back from the workforce to have children, and while it was a decision I absolutely made, I actually surprised Bill when I told him that's what I wanted to do. I loved it. I loved raising our kids. But because you're not participating in what society calls productive work, and you're busy, you know, changing diapers, nursing babies and stuff, you're not keeping up on the business news as much or what's going on. And so we would go to dinner parties and when someone would throw out a question, Bill would immediately answer it. And he had, you know, they were a perfect whatever answer for it. And I started to realize that I wasn't using my voice as much. I wasn't speaking up. Or sometimes, not very often, but sometimes I would speak up and he would talk over me. And that, you want to set me off, do that to me. <laughs> And so we would go home, and we usually wouldn't even get home because we'd be in the car by the time it came up. And I said, you have to stop doing that because you can't either cut me off or you can't, if you think I said something that was wrong, don't correct me. Because everybody automatically assumes at that dinner table you're the smartest person at the table. And that's not always true. Like and we know what Warren Buffett thinks. <laughs> I wish I'd known that then. <laughs> I knew what I thought, and that's what mattered, right? I mean, I do know a lot. And so he learned, and I would give him feedback, and then he took him a little while, and then he stopped doing it. And he got there. And he got there, absolutely. And this is an important point, because also in the workplace, this happens all the time to women. You sit around these tables, and a woman will say something, and a man will cut her off. Or he'll re-explain her point. That's called mansplaining these days by the yes, millennials. It is. And so literally when Bill and I sit at the head of the table at the foundation, there'll be three dozen people in the room. If I see another man do it to a woman, I'll say, excuse me, she was in the middle of saying something, which is, don't you ever do that again. And they get the message. Raising your hand for other women. There you go. This brings up a really good audience question that we got. Uh, Claudia from Plano, who's in the audience, asked... How did you know that you were ready for kids? What's your advice for a woman in her late 30s, accomplished in her career, knows she has a long professional runway, and is worried that kids are going to slow her progress? Oh, I would say to you, if in your heart you want to have kids, just go ahead and do it. It's the greatest gift of life, I think, to me, to be a parent. I always wanted to be a parent. And so if that's in your heart, you'll figure out the work thing. And work is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you may take a lateral move for a while. You may step back for a little while and then go back in. But what I want you to know is that you have a long career and life ahead of you. And there can be, at least to me, there was never, I never, so a man said to me one time, you know, Melinda, you never get a do-over with your kids. And he was a man it, so a, true. in a very high-ranking position who'd helped he and his wife had raised two boys. And I thought, that is so true. And so I always put my kids before my work and figure out how to balance it. So you never I would get say, a do-over with your kids. You don't get a do-over with your kids. Melinda, you open up about abuse. Mm. You faced abuse in a prior relationship before you met Bill. What was your internal struggle and how did you leave? Yeah, so that was the hardest page of the book to write. I wrote it and rewrote it and threw it away and rewrote it again. But I thought it was important to share my story um, to the extent I was wanted to in the book, so just a page, because this is the story of millions and millions and millions of women around the world. We know that a third of women around the world are abused. And, you know, abuse can have lots of different forms. Um, it's horrific, but it silenced me. It silenced my voice and it took away my self-confidence. And that's what happens to women. It's part of the reason sometimes that they get abused. There's abuse, and then there's also at the other end of the spectrum, workplace harassment. And women in the United States, if they have been harassed at work, they leave their job at an 80% rate within two years. So none of this behavior is acceptable. And this is something that we all have to recognize, and we need to be transparent about it, and we need to do something about it. And so we have to help other people realize what it is, and we have to stand up to people who are abusers.
how did you have the strength to leave? I had another guy friend who I finally confided in what was going on, and he helped me leave the relationship. A man helped you leave? A man helped me leave. That's beautiful. Before we wrap up, um, thinking about those in power who can do things to help. As I said before, you write a lot about the book, in the book about outsiders, and you argue overcoming the need to create outsiders is our greatest challenge as human beings. You call on everyone to wake up to the ways that we exclude. You have said that you are, quote, incredibly disappointed uh, at the current administration, at the Trump administration. I know you've met with the president. What is the most important thing that the Trump administration could do to include the most Americans who need it most? Look at all the places that we still have poverty in the United States and say that's not acceptable. We're going to make investments on behalf of low-income people in this country and then look at all the places that our U.S. education system is broken and say we deserve better as Americans for our students to be educated in this society and fix the U.S. education system. So tax, tax cuts, for example, for corporations. Tax cuts for corporations, you know, many had said should more be going to those most in need. Absolutely more money should be going to those in need. So again, we got to look at our tax policy, both for corporations and for individuals. And sometimes it's not always, it, it's absolutely money, but it's also policy. We have policy decisions that need to be made in this country, like paid family medical leave. That would say we value families and kids and the elderly as much as we value work in this country. And that is something that Ivanka Trump has been talking about and working on. Let's see if Congress can actually get something done. There's no, I mean, I didn't need the paid leave. I'm glad I had it, but I could have gotten by without it, which I just find ironic that it's the people often that need it the most that don't get it and those that don't need it get it. Yeah, think about a single mom raising a son or daughter. And when you talk to single moms, they will cobble together, if they can, two vacation days. So they go to the hospital, they have a baby, and two days later, they're working. And yet we know for baby's health, the best thing a mom can do is breastfeed. A single mom can't do that in those situations. Because you bring up babies, um, measles. Yeah. The measles epidemic. I mean, all that the Gates Foundation has done for vaccines around the world to eradicate things like polio and measles. Now it is the worst in the U.S., the measles epidemic, that it has been in decades, over 700 cases this year alone, half of them in children under five years old. What is your message to America right now on this? My message is talk to your pediatrician. They will tell you to vaccinate your child. And... I meet, I meet men and women every day that I'm in the developing world who will say they walked 10 kilometers or 10 miles to get their kids vaccinated. They, get, they find out when the vaccines are available and they go because they say, these vaccines save my child's life. And we have too short of a memory in this country mm. about what it was like to have measles. You know, measles kills children. Yes. It kills people who are immunocompromised. So we are lucky to have vaccines in this country and we should use them. I live in Brooklyn where mm. the biggest outbreak mm. is and I just took both my children for their second booster very early uh, because, you know, the doctor recommended it. Mm-hmm. Listen to your pediatrician. Um, I will not ask you if you're ever going to run for political office because I know the answer is no, she has said. So no questions about if you're joining the 2020 race right now. But, 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 before we go, I am interested in why. Why do you have no interest in political office? Because I love my current job. Bill and I both um, absolutely love what we're doing. And I think philanthropy has a role. I think it's a limited role, but it has a role in society alongside government, alongside civil society, alongside um, the the various partners that we work with, the NGO, the non-governmental organizations. Um, Philanthropy can be this catalytic wedge. It can take risks and do experiments um, and then prove things out and measure them. Things that you wouldn't want your government to do with taxpayer dollars. But if something works, for instance, a new malaria vaccine, if it's efficacious and it works, then it's up to government to scale it up. 
Um, but I absolutely love what I'm doing in philanthropy, so I don't want to do anything else. All right. So let's end on a call to action. Sure. And what everyone can do. Because I think it seems so big, like when people said, you have to do more, and you were, you know, how can I take all of this on? You write in the book, all of us have to let our hearts break. It is the price of being present to someone who is suffering. We've all had our hearts broken. What can we all do to help the most? Well, what I would say to everybody in this room or anybody watching is that, you know, equality can't wait. Let's use this opportunity we have. We all have time. We all have energy. We all have resources. And you can use any combination of those three. But look in your home and ask yourself, do you have true equality in your home? And if not, make some changes there. Look in your workplace and say to yourself, am I helping bring a young girl to get her first internship or her first job or somebody who's doesn't look like me? Am I opening my network to not only mentor them but to help them with that runway on? Am I demanding in my workplace good paid family medical leave? Am I asking for transparency of who's in various types of roles and what their pay is? Look in your community and say, who do you want to vote for? Do you want to ask for policies on paid family medical leave? Do you want to mentor somebody in the community? There are so many things that we can do. And so I would say look in all three of those places and then just decide. Commit yourself to doing something. Enough is enough. Now is the time. Now is the moment of lift. Melinda Gates, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.